I will never forget that telephone call I received several years ago. I was living in St. Louis at the time. A call from my friend who said, my sister has been murdered. And to make matters worse, if there can be anything worse than that, her daughter has been murdered too. On her first birthday, as they were preparing to go out to a birthday party. To make matters even worse, the father of the child murdered both of them. They were having a dispute over custody and child support. And so they, he took it into his own hands and murdered them. I, I have never been in a situation quite like that. I didn't really know what to say. And then he asked the question that most preachers don't want to answer. I mean, there's a lot of questions they don't want to answer. But he said, I was just taking it very seriously and personally. He said, would you come and do the funeral? I have to admit to you, I didn't want to do that funeral. I didn't know what to do or say. It's a tragedy. Lives broken, really. Families torn apart now forever because of this senseless murder. You shall not commit murder. God values human life at every age and every stage. The Ten Commandments, as we are learning, have been God's rules to us for living in community with both Him and others. And so the first commandments were about honoring God, and these last commandments are about honoring one another. Last week we talked about honoring parents. Today we are talking about honoring human life. Stuart Briscoe says, This commandment does not aim at prohibiting all killing as much as it prohibits murder, taking the life with forethought. To the Hebrews, murder meant unlawful or immoral killing of another, causing the death of another human being through careless behavior. God values human life, and He makes it clear that he, it is not His intention for us to destroy it. Why? Because we are made in the image of God, and when we destroy what God has made, we are taking it into our own hands. We are challenging His authority as ultimate maker and creator of all things. And so God prohibit, prohibits the murder of those made in His image. I was talking about this a little bit with my grandson, and he kind of said to me, well, you know, this should be a pretty easy week because, you know, I'm not a murderer. I don't think very many people here will kind of fall into that category. So we're all off the hook, right? No murderers in this room, so we could just say the prayer, sing the song, and go home. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. A lot of times when preachers or teachers want to find out more about God's Word, they will go to commentaries. A commentary is something written by a very smart person, a theologian, Bible scholar, knows a lot about Bible backgrounds and Bible words and they know a lot of stuff, and, and, and so they write a commentary on a passage of Scripture to help us understand, to enlighten us a little bit more, because they're so much smarter than we are. 
And it always helps a lot of times to look at these different opinions, try to maybe get a different insight. Well, I have run across the best, the only, the ultimate commentary on this commandment. The only commentary you will really ever need. And it is found in Matthew 5, starting with verse 21. Jesus himself writes a commentary on this commandment. You have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you're even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Few of us will literally, physically commit murder. But Jesus takes murder to a whole new level. You see, he is not primarily concerned with outside. He's concerned with what it starts with on the inside, what the Bible often calls our heart. What is it in our heart that leads to these violent intentions? He goes right beyond the action back to the attitude that causes the destructive action. His underlying message is something like this. God is not only interested in whether you murder someone, but if you would murder someone if you had the chance and you would never get caught. What's behind those intentions? What would you do if you thought you could get away with it forever? That's what Jesus is talking about. You know, uh, there was a third grade teacher giving a lesson on uh, the, the honor your father and mother commandment. And she said to the class, she said, class, is there a commandment that relates to your brother and sister? And one sharp little girl said, yes, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> Haven't we all been there? We all harbor those kinds of intentions from time to time, don't we? We even sometimes say, I could just kill them. You don't want to say that in a crowded airport. You'll find yourself in a little room with a lot of federal agents. <laughs> People take these words seriously today, and we should too. Jesus says the words that we use are really an indicator of what's really on the inside. And those words often lead to destructive, violent behavior. The attitude behind murder, Jesus says, is anger. One author said, anger is one letter short of danger. Got to think about that one for a minute. We can all identify with anger, can't we? In a recent survey, 12% of the people surveyed said they have trouble controlling their anger. I don't believe it. I think it's higher than that, but that's all that will omit it. 28% say they worry about their angry feelings. 20% say they have ended a relationship because of anger, either because of their own anger or because of somebody else's anger. And here's the big one. 64% agree that people are becoming angrier and angrier. Don't you just see that every day? People get just bent out of shape over the littlest things. You stand in line at a burger place and somebody blows up because they got a pickle or they didn't get a pickle. Haven't you seen, I mean, I can't be the only one that notices this stuff. People are just so irritable, and they're just ready at a moment's notice to lash out, aren't they? Our world is not getting better and better. We are getting angrier 
and angrier. And we see it around us. I like the way Stuart Briscoe uh, paraphrases Jesus' comments here. He, he paraphrases them like this. And this really starts stomping on your toes when you hear it this way. Listen, if you kill somebody, they'll hold you before the Sanhedrin for judgment. But I'll tell you something worse than that. If you hate someone in your heart, if you're malicious, if you insult people, if you wish them dead, if you want them out of the way, if you say they're worthless, if you deny they are what God says they are, you're not in danger of the Sanhedrin. You're in danger of hell itself. Anger is serious business. It affects every one of us. Why do we become angry? A lot of reasons, just a few. We become angry when we're frightened. You've heard the old fight or flight thing. Oftentimes we become frightened of something and we, you know, start fighting back. We're angry because our expectations are not met and we don't get our way. Now I notice this a lot. Things just don't go the way we think they should go, and we just get mad about it. We're angry because we're hurt. I don't know if you've ever hit your uh, thumbnail with a hammer, but sometimes the words that come out of your mouth and the things that you do aren't exactly in control. When we're hurting, we hurt. Hurting people hurt people. And rarely, just rarely, we become angry over some sort of an injustice done to someone else. But that's rare. For the most part, our anger, our rage, our irritation, our frustration is directed towards others and situations because we don't get what we want. Somebody should do something for us, and they didn't do it, and we become angry. And then look what happens next. Jesus says words come out of our mouth and all that kind of thing. Uh, begins to happen. It starts on the inside, works its way out through your mouth and into your behavior. I saw a little acrostic that helps understand this progression, and you can remember this because it's M-A-D, mad, because you have to force it a little bit to make it work, but it, it's okay. M, you start being miffed about something. You're just irritated. It's just like having a a rock in your shoe. It just rubs on you the wrong way. And every time this thing comes up or every time you see this, you just you dwell on it. You just think about it a lot. Just irritates you and you don't mind to tell everybody that irritates and you just blow off steam about it have you ever been there sort of like traffic in bloomington it just sort of gets under your skin if i see another closed road sign fill in the blank and it goes from m miffed to a aggravated by that time, I'm beginning to direct this anger, this feeling to somebody. It's somebody's fault, and somebody needs to pay for it, but just as long as it's not me. You know, you've seen that. I feel so sorry for all of you who are in customer service because you get blamed for everything when it's not your fault. Or waitresses and waitstaffs. I feel sorry for them. You know, Christians just tromp on them when they, you know, again, don't get their pickle. You have to direct your anger at something. It goes beyond being a little miffed about it. This irritation is starting to hurt, and you lash out at somebody. And then finally, well, let this quote. I had to think about it a while, but it's true. When you're angry, you make the best speech you'll ever regret. Have you ever done that? You've said something, and the minute it comes out of your mouth, you go, I wish I hadn't said that. 
Look what it's done to the other person. A lot of times parents will do that unthinkingly to their children. You can wilt a kid quick, many kids, especially little kids, with an angry word. And the little tears will come in their eyes and their lip will start going like that. And you think, oh, I think I used a hammer when I shouldn't have. Have you ever sent an email that you wish you could take back? I have. And nowadays, with all our cameras on our phones, your angry display can be YouTubed to the entire world. Don't let that happen to you. Destruction comes, M-A-D, after the aggravation. We want somebody to pay for what has happened to us. And we want to hurt somebody and not us. Now, you may be thinking, if you're very theological, you may be thinking, wait a minute. Uh, God is angry a lot. You know, he's always smiting things. And and, and so is, is he kind of like the dad who says, you know, do as I say and not as I do kind of thing? And Jesus, man, he got angry. He was in the temple. Uh, is he sort of the same way? Or what is the deal with this? You know, there's a, there's a book, uh, a good book if you want to read some of the uh, a little more popular level thinking about this called God Behaving Badly. And in this book, uh, David Lamb talks about his study of God's reasons for his anger. And in this study, he gives several different examples of all the ones that people bring up, the Canaanites and everybody that God smites and all that thing. And he he eventually says this, God's reasons for anger are more legitimate than ours. The elimination of oppression, violence, and injustice. God's wrath came from his compassion. He goes on to talk about the New Testament passages, the two in particular we like to talk about, are Jesus cleansing the temple and making a big mess in there. And and, uh, he says, look why Jesus did that. What's the motivation behind that? The worship is out of control. The people who need to be worshiping here, my house is meant to be a house of prayer, can't because of all the money changing. And Jesus said, this is not right. You money changers are in the way of a relationship, the relationship I want to have with my people. Jesus cast that out, not out of anger, which was unmanageable and uncontrolled, but out of what some call a righteous anger over injustice. Think about the time he got mad at the religious leaders for curing the the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath of all things. He broke our rule. So they get on Jesus to say, you shouldn't be working. And he gets mad at that. So-called religious people who have no compassion for people who hurt. Jesus' anger comes from compassion over injustice and over hurting people. And so David Lamb says, is the God of the Old Testament angry? Yes. Is he loving? Yes, because he often says, I am slow to anger. I mean, think about the time of Nineveh. Jonah said, oh, I just knew it. I knew if I preached to them, you would forgive them. Later, God doesn't, but he gives them a chance. God says, I'm slow to anger. Is the God of the New Testament angry? Yes. Is he loving? Yes. Love for people can lead to anger over broken relationships. Love for people can lead to anger over injustice. The God of the Old Testament and the New Testament is quick to love and slow to anger, and so should we. Do you remember, we studied just recently, the book of James. The book, the letter that is closest to the earliest church that we can find, 
So much of the book of James sounds like the Sermon on the Mount. And James says we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I've got that one memorized. It must have been a big deal. It's a big deal to Jesus. It's a big deal to James, and it's a big deal to God. So what about what do we do about our anger? Let me read some more from the Sermon on the Mount to sort of help put our attitudes and anger in, in uh, perspective. Verse 38. You have heard the law that says punishment must match the injury. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat also. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to uh, those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, what can I do about this feeling that wells up inside me? If I'm angry, Jesus says, before I offer my offerings, I immediately, I go to the other person and I try to resolve this. I want to fix it. I don't run away from it. I try to fix it. I am quick to forgive. Not, I don't hold that in. That's what Jesus says. I, I'm not saying I do that all the time. I'm saying that's what he asks us to do. And, and that's hard for us to do. Now, I've talked to people who say, well, I've tried that. I have done everything I can do to reconcile to this person that I've been angry with or they were angry at me and it's not working. Here's what I have to tell you. Jesus does not ask you to go any farther than you can. There's only so much you can do and then it's in the other person's court. They have to come to you now. You steward your relationship up to the point where you have done all you can do and then if they turn away from you, you can still leave with a forgiving heart. Then that's on them, not on you. Then Jesus talks about turning the other cheek. In that culture, you know, you get hit across the cheek, and then if you got backhanded, the backhand slap is even more of an insult than the fronthand slap, so to speak. So do not retaliate in kind. Just take it. Don't retaliate when someone strikes back at you or speaks angrily at you. You notice how that happens? It, we, we call that escalation. It really escalates in a hurry. Name-calling escalates to physical violence. You, you've seen that happen. Don't let that happen. Now, I have to stop here and say, but some people who are, uh, this is malpractice, use the scripture to say, well, you know, husbands should go ahead and beat around on their wives. Wives, you just have to turn the other cheek. That is wrong. It is malpractice. If somebody's beating up on you in a relationship, get out of it. And if you can't fix it, get away from that violence. God does not intend for you to be somebody's punching bag. But he does not also intend for you to, to respond in kind. He res asks you to respond in a different way. You notice he says, go the extra mile. Be kind to those who assault you in any way. 
Uh, I, you know, I, I suppose you read this week maybe of some of the, the stories of the victims of the Colorado shooting, how the one fellow is talking about he had, he's, tr- he's forgiving this guy, and you think, how in the world can he do that? Well, he's followed Jesus, and he's doing his best to try to forgive the guy. Now, that's hard to do. Jesus says, uh, love the opposition and pray for them. Sometimes the only thing you can do is pray. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll get back at those folks, but not you. The voice translation says in verse 48, you are called to something higher. You are not just to uh, do the right thing. You are to be the right person that God intends for you to be, a follower of Jesus. Now, this idea of being perfect really bothers me because I'm not even close. William Barclay, the old uh, British theologian, says this, it is when a man reproduces his life the unwearied, forgiving, sacrificial benevolence of God that he becomes more like God and is therefore perfect in the New Testament sense. I can't do this on my own, but as I am trying to become more like Jesus, he says, the man who cares most for other men is the most perfect of people. That's us. As we try, as we try our best to live out the teachings of Jesus, even in this area of anger and vengeance and violence, we become perfect, more perfect just like he is. Well, what do we do about it in our closing few moments together? Well, we have the ability, uh, unlike the rest of the animal kingdom, we have the ability to stop and think. We don't just have to respond. Now, I know we do, but we don't have to. We can stop and think about what's happening to us. My mother used to say, bite your tongue. I say, you don't have to say everything you think. It's not helpful. Step back. Get some perspective. Uh, One counselor friend I know often says this, and you probably heard it before, no one can make you angry. Well, that's probably true, but I don't want to hear it. I would rather be angry. But it starts with me. I have the ability to stop and think. Someone said you can repress your anger, which means you're buried alive, and it just eats you alive until one day you blow up. That's kind of what happens with all those quiet people. All of a sudden, they just can't take it anymore, and they blow apart with anger and violence. You can suppress it. Now, that's burying it, but not quite the same way. It's it's waiting for a time, holding back. It's the idea of pushing the pause button to a more constructive time. I can express it, which a lot of people do. They just let it fly whenever, or the best way is to confess it. I can confess to God and those who I have difficulties with of my anger and how I'm dealing with and how I need forgiveness and how I should offer forgiveness because that's exactly how Jesus treated me. We can apply Jesus' secret weapons, kindness and prayer. It's never wrong to be kind. It's never wrong to pray. And we can aim for a higher standard, a more perfect standard. Jesus calls us to be peacemakers, not peace breakers. And it starts right here. Murders all around us in the world, genocide and countries killing their own people for who knows what reason. The Colorado disaster just a week and a half ago. Look at this in the paper this week. Man shot to death right here in our own community. The Center for Disease Control says at least 17,000 people a year are murdered in the United States. also says that the actual cost of violence is $106 per capita. Now, that doesn't sound 
a lot until you, you, you multiply in the per capita part. Millions of dollars are lost because of violence and violent behavior. But this morning, I want us to remember that God values life at every age, at every stage. It is in t- His intention for us to live in a peaceable kingdom where there's love and kindness and forgiveness. When I stood at uh, the casket at the funeral and, and saw mom buried with her daughter in her arms, I didn't really know what to say. I didn't know how to start. And I don't remember the words because it was many years ago, but I said something like this. What you see here today is a tragedy. And some of you are blaming God. But don't blame God for this. This is evil. This was done by an evil person with murderous evil intent. And God weeps with us just as we weep today. I would like to tell you that story ended really well, but the family never did get over that. And I don't see how they could, really, but there was a bitterness in their hearts that they cannot get rid of. God hates murder. And you're not off the hook. Paul says the only way to overcome evil is with good. And God took his own medicine as he sent his son to demonstrate goodness to us and to to sacrifice himself for us. While we were sinners, while we did not deserve God's gift, he gave it to us. His gift of kindness, his gift of mercy. So he asks us to join him in this creation, this bringing heaven to earth as we begin to establish a peaceable kingdom.